Do you give thanks every meal? I don't want to unsettle you, but if you're in the habit of not giving thanks, you are succumbing to idolatry. And it is an idolatrous view. We make ourselves, we make our prosperity, we rule the world. Ours is an idolatrous society. Gentiles are idolaters and idolatry is death. So are all who trust in them. But now they recognise that God has given Gentiles idolatrous rebels a way to life. That's what's so extraordinary. Even to Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now life here is not breathing. It's the life that Jesus spoke about in the gospel, the life he came to give. It's the life of the new age. It's being spared judgment to live in the new heaven and earth. It's the life of the age to come that starts now with the gift of the spirit, that life at work in believers, the life of the son that will raise them up at the last day. Life here is rich. It's security in God's presence, being at peace with God, knowing God and being part of his people forever. God has given now to the Gentiles repentance unto life. But here again, there are two more ideas that we're uncomfortable with, if we really stop and think about it. Firstly, this life is God's gift. No one is owed it. It's not something anyone has a right to. It's an expression of God's generosity, of his kindness. It can't be earned or demanded. It depends on him. And actually, as a society, we're uncomfortable with that. You see, we have a view of equality that does insist on sameness, that seeks to compel sameness in people's treatment of each other. It's not fair if you don't treat me in exactly the same way as the other person. And so many are offended that God might give to one what he does not give to another. Even here, when they're acknowledging a gift to a class of people, we're still uneasy. This is a gift, not something Gentiles could demand. They couldn't come and say, we have a right to be treated exactly like the Jews. No, it's a gift of grace. God is free to do what he wills with his kindness. And we are dependent for life on his kindness. Oh, and the other idea that troubles us if we think about it, is that the way to life is repentance. And we talked about this a bit yesterday. You know, saying that the way to life is repentance is almost an oxymoron for us. That is a statement that contains an internal contradiction. Do you feel that contradiction when you say the way to life is repentance? Well, how do we understand what it really is to live in our society? To live for us is our autonomy. Our life for us, is being able to do what we want, what pleases us, without being constrained by others. That even feeds into our advertising. Just do it. Is that Nike? Just do it because you can. Life is being able to assert our right to do what we want with our bodies, say in the abortion debate, with our money, to just spend it on ourselves. That's what the advertisers want. We don't have a duty to the poor. Oh, no. 
our time. It's my own, isn't it? And to be only accountable to ourselves for that. That's what we think it is to live. But what's repentance? Well, repentance is a denial. It's actually a repudiation of our autonomy. It's the death of the autonomous individual. Remember what Jesus says, giving up your life. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Let me unpack that a bit. You see, repentance is fundamentally changing your mind and so changing your direction. And fundamentally, it's changing your mind about who should be in control, who has the right to direct your life. Repentance is acknowledging that the creator God is God, your God. And he has a right as your creator to direct your life and you're accountable to him for the gift of life you're given him. And so when we repent, we say our idols are not God but usurpers. We'll no longer have our lives di directed by our loyalty to them, by our loyalty to our reason or our pleasure or our other religion or ideology. Repentance is saying our own wills are not God, our own desires are not God. And Christian repentance is acknowledging that God is God by recognising that he has exalted his son Jesus as Lord. And it is the creator, God's will, that all should trust and obey him, that all honour him, the creator God, by honouring his son. And we honour his son by letting him direct our lives. So yes, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, is a call to the repentance that flows from faith because it's saying Jesus calls the shots in my life. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? That God has granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. It's saying life is found in giving up life to follow Jesus. It's saying that dignity is found in humbling ourselves to trust and obey Jesus. It's saying that hope is found in despairing of ourselves to give ourselves life. It's saying that real love is known in abandoning self-love. So different from an age that says you should look to yourself for identity and purpose, look to your feelings and desires for direction, that you should feel free to worship, give your loyalty to any you choose as long as it is your choice and your choice rules. But it is repentance, repentance of our idolatry that gives life, a repentance that assumes faith in Jesus. We have to know who to turn back to and we have to be confident he will receive us if we return to him. The confidence that our Lord's story of the prodigal gives us. The father runs to meet the returning son. So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life. That is a wonderful conclusion. 
It's saying dead rebels can find life by turning back to God. You and I can find life. It's an undeserved conclusion. And yes, it's a challenging conclusion because we have to say God is God and he finds life by humbling ourselves to trust him. Now, because it's a challenging conclusion and because it was a particularly challenging conclusion for Peter's first Jewish hearers, how can they be sure it's the right conclusion that God really has given life to repentant idolaters? Well, they don't arrive at this conclusion by autonomous theological reflection, do they? Nor because they'd like to think this is the case. They actually come to this conclusion in a sense despite themselves. They come to this conclusion because God has made it inescapable. This is where the repetition comes in. You know, God's like a good school teacher writing this conclusion on the whiteboard in capital letters and then getting out the red texter or whatever it was on the computer uh, and underlining it, right? Because he wants you to get it. So let's review the story and see what God does. So you're actually convinced God has given the Gentiles repentance under life. Let's just review the story. God's action is pretty clear, isn't it? 10-3. He directs Cornelius. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius says, what is it? And he gives him very clear and specific instructions. Send a man to Joppa and bring a man back and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. God directs Cornelius. Oh yeah, and then God challenges Peter about, in a sense, his prejudices. Verses 10 to 16, like those restaurants that have pictures of the meals in their menu, God sends the hungry Peter a menu with a message. That's what he's getting, a menu with a message. And the message is, who gets to say what is unclean and what is clean? Who is acceptable in God's presence and who's not? And God's actually saying to Peter, I do. God gets to say who's clean and not clean. And uh, it says something about Peter, doesn't it? Because this happens three times. Right? God wants Peter to get that truth. He is in control of who's acceptable to him. Oh, and then after the vision, it's God who directs Peter. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. He's leaving nothing to chance. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. He directs Peter to go with Cornelius's servants. And then these actions of God are recounted aren't they? For us, when Peter comes to Cornelius, <coughs> he says, he, he says, uh, uh, you, you're well, but, but God's shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. We're directed back to the vision. And then he says, why did you send for me? And Cornelius recounts basically God's direction of him. I saw an angel. Cornelius, he said, God's heard your prayer, send to Joppa. And then, of course, to top it all off, we have verses 44 to 46. While Peter is still speaking, God 
pours out the Spirit on those listening. Recognised by an audible expression of Spirit-inspired praise. See, you see, God doesn't leave them, that is, Peter and his Jewish companions, to infer what the state of these Gentiles is from their belief in the message. No, God shows them the Gentiles are included in his new covenant people by giving them the Spirit. And that is all recounted in chapter 11. Peter, in his defence, tells the whole story again. And remember, repetition is emphasis. God, through his inspired word, doesn't want us to miss or doubt the conclusion either. It's God who has made it plain that he has included Gentiles amongst Jesus' people those who are marked out as his own by reception of the Spirit. So God's made it clear, hasn't he? So clear it cannot be denied. So clear that it silences Peter's questioners now. So clear it will actually be recalled in chapter 15 at the key discussion about whether you have to become a Jew to be saved by the Jewish Saviour, whether you've got to keep the law and Jewish customs to be one of Jesus' people. This is clearly God's work. This recognition has come because God has made it inescapable. He's made it happen. And by the way, just as an aside, I was talking to Scott and Jess, we ought to listen to this. So often, you know, people turn themselves upside down, you know, thinking about guidance and oh, whether they should get some direct word. God has no trouble making himself clear when he wants to. If God wanted to tell you something, he would get through, okay? Just remember that. He's not going to be troubled. Uh, you know, so, so, so you can let his communication and leave his communication to him and actually read and reflect on his word. That will get you a, a whole lot. If he wants to give you a special word, you will know it. Okay, it's highly unlikely. And you may well be self-deceived, but anyhow. Uh, God has made it uh, clear, right? He has made, he has brought this recognition. But notice, God doesn't include the Gentiles independent of his people. See, what's the means God uses to give them this gift of life? Well, it's actually Peter and his preaching. That's right. God gave Cornelius and his group this gift of life through Cornelius and his group receiving the gospel by bringing Peter to preach to them. There really is no independent way of salvation. When God wanted Cornelius to be saved, he brought the gospel to Cornelius. That's really important to remember. There isn't another way. When God wants to save, he brings the gospel to people. 10.33-43 is a summary of the gospel. And let me say it's interesting because we have Iranians and they have dreams and many of them will tell you that it's the dreams 
that in a sense first get them going. But what actually brings them into the faith, what brings them to be baptised, is actually hearing the gospel. Either getting the New Testament and reading it and reading it, it's actually the gospel. So 10.33 to 43 is a summary of the gospel, uh, pretty much an outline like the gospel of Mark, a summary that's interrupted. And the important thing to notice about this summary is it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Uh, verse 36, we're told <coughs> Jesus is the Lord of all who brings peace. Verse 37, a real man whose deeds were known. Verse 38, that he was anointed by God and as God's chosen king, bringing the kingdom in his ministry, confronting evil and all those forces in the world that diminish human life. Oh yes, we go and we're told he's Jesus who was killed on a cross. Jesus whom God raised from the dead. A real resurrection, a witnessed resurrection. Jesus who has authority to judge the living and the dead. And as such, he's the one who fulfills the longing and desire of God's people. He has the authority to give forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him, all who trust him. Repentance to life comes through hearing the message of Jesus and believing it. There is no other way. As I've said, there's a lot of speculation on how God might save those who haven't heard the gospel. And uh, that speculation's been going on for a long time and people go down all sorts of pathways, you know, trying to think about this. Let me say, the New Testament doesn't encourage any speculation. Rather, it suggests, it's actually the opposite. God brings the gospel to those he wants to save. That is his way of saving. He brings the gospel to those he wants to save. And people are saved through believing that gospel and he brings the gospel to them through people. His people who know the gospel and can share it. Remember what Paul has said in Romans. Faith comes through hearing. Hearing through the preaching of the gospel. The means of life for all is the message of Jesus. That's the means of being saved for idolaters, the idolaters in your life. That is how God will save the idolaters in your life. Hearing the gospel. Because they can't repent of an idol unless they know the true God. And the true God has revealed himself in the Son and they can't repent of their idolatry unless they know the true God is summoning them to repent and will receive them, will forgive them that idolatry which is damnable. The gospel tells them that. And on what terms? So the means of saving, of bringing repentance to life is the gospel of Jesus. On what terms then does God grant this life uh, to the Gentiles. Well, Peter interprets what's happened to Cornelius and his family and friends in the light of his own experience and the experience of the other Jewish believers. And this is 11, uh, 15 to 17. 
Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. He's saying, I recognise this. This happened to me. I understand what's going on. Okay, so how should I then think of the Spirit coming on them? Verse 16, I remember what the Lord had said. John baptised with water, but you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. That, that's right. Our receiving the Spirit was the fulfilment of that prophecy of John the Baptist. Remember he said, you can find it in Luke uh, 3.16, that after me comes one who is mightier than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and Jesus reminded us of this. And then the Spirit came on us and actually, by reminding us of that prophecy, Jesus was teaching us that he is the exalted Lord and he makes those who trust him members of his people, gives them new life, incorporates them into the new Israel through the reception of the spirit he gives. Because that's what John was doing with his water baptism. He was saying... This is the true Israel waiting for the Messiah, the people who prepared themselves for his coming through repentance. But he says when the Messiah comes, it won't just be a waiting, anticipatory Israel. It will be the true, real people of God who will inherit the new heaven and the earth. The Messiah will bring what God has promised. He will bring the Spirit and, and those promises, you can find them. Peter quotes uh, Joel 2. You might find one in Isaiah 44. But let's look at the one in Ezekiel 36 to see what it means to receive the Spirit. In Ezekiel, uh, you read Ezekiel, which I'm sure you've done, and really the first up to, oh, I've forgotten where it is, about it's just depressing, okay? Because Ezekiel keeps saying, don't believe those people who say Jerusalem's going to be spared. Uh, Jerusalem's going to be condemned for its idolatry. And he just has to do that chapter after chapter after chapter. But there comes a turning point when Jerusalem is actually restored. <coughs> and at that, after that turning point, uh, God starts speaking of prophecies of the restoration of Israel, the new Israel, the Israel that will endure, and it will endure because God will address the causes of Israel's earlier destruction. <laughs> a destruction that, in a sense, has brought dishonour to God's name, that God can't keep his people. And the key to addressing that, the key to getting a new Israel that will endure as God's people and will honour God's name, is found in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And in Ezekiel 36, God says, he says this, uh, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God will enable his people to keep his covenant. 
and so they'll endure forever as his people. And then he goes on to speak of the resurrection and the new Israel and the new heaven and the new earth. The Messiah creates the new Israel. He's the one who brings cleansing through his death and he gives the spirit. He makes you God's people by baptising you with his spirit. So what has Jesus done for the Gentiles and done in a way that can't be argued with? By giving them his spirit. He has made them his people. He has incorporated them into the new Israel. They are the Messiah's people because it's the possession of the spirit which marks out the Messiah's people. And they receive this spirit in exactly the same way as those first Jewish believers. Verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could resist God? They have repentance to life on exactly the same terms as the apostles themselves. And this is reinforced in the key discussion in Acts 15. In Acts 15, uh, some people come and say, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. So some Jews are saying, unless you become a Jew, you can't be saved. Saved by the Jewish Messiah, you've got to be a Jew, circumcision, all that kind of stuff. Now in the course of the discussion, Peter stands up and says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the hearts, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now it's... Now we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. How are the Gentiles included? On what terms? It's grace and faith. It's believing the gospel they've heard. There's nothing more. God grants Gentiles repentance unto life on exactly the term, same terms as the Jews. They don't need to become Jews to be saved by the Jewish Messiah and incorporated into the new Israel. And the reason for that is because all Jew and Gentile alike are included on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on what they've done or the laws they've kept or who they are. They're included because by faith they are in Jesus. Well, <clears throat> Acts 8, we saw those who had been scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Wherever. Every place is a place to preach the gospel. <laughs> They're part of a movement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But now we learn that the word is to be preached to all, not just wherever, but to whomsoever. That is God's will. None are excluded from being saved by his son. And isn't that great good news? This is why the gospel has come to us. Because God is determined that the gospel come to us.
to all, to the ends of the earth, and B, for all. That God has granted the Gentiles, idolaters, who have given what belongs to God to products of their own imagination, that God has granted Gentiles repentance that leads to life, is great good news for us, isn't it? Because we live in an idolatrous age. All need the gospel because all are dead. And there is only one way to bring life to the dead, only one way to restore rebels to peace with God, and that's the gospel. It would be a shame if we lost the conviction that the gospel is to be preached to all. Preached to all, to the happy and content, to the good and the moral, to the social outcast, the chaotic and the lawless. The gospel is for all. But it would be a shame if we lost that conviction, if we kept quiet about Jesus for any reason, if, even if it were for the mistaken reason that we felt bad about asking someone to pay the cost or we thought that somebody was you know, beyond the pale of decency or we thought someone was too enmeshed in lies or in a worldview so alien to the truth. And that's our temptation today, isn't it? We, we look at people and we think their understanding of reality is just so far from an understanding of the gospel. They, they don't even believe in God. They don't say, or they say they've got no sense of a creator. They don't reckon there's any such thing as sin. Where do we start? we start with Jesus because the gospel is for all that's God's will and he will save his people through the gospel he saves them by bringing his people to them with the gospel to keep quiet would be God's judgment on our neighbours if, if Christians keep quiet it's a dreadful judgment on them for they need to be heard and it would be God's judgment on us <coughs> if we withheld the word from them, if we were ashamed to offer the life the gospel gives because we think they might think we're from another planet or something. That would be a great judgment on us because it would be a failure of love. It would be a failure of love of God because if you love God, you want the truth about him known and you want him honoured in truth. And it would be a failure of love of neighbour because you want them, sure, to have forgiveness and peace with God and life, the forgiveness and peace and life you enjoy. And just as the conviction of the truth of the gospel, that the gospel's the same gospel that Philip preached and brings forgiveness and hope and joy and freedom. Just as a conviction of the truth of the gospel and just as confidence that the gospel and bringing it to the world is God's project sustain us in being resilient gospelers. So a conviction that the gospel is for all without exception and the love of neighbour God commands and encourages in us through knowing his love. Well, that will make us resilient gospelers too, to all. 
So take every opportunity with whoever the Lord brings across your path to speak to them of Jesus. Because the gospel is for them. Even unto the Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life. Dead idolaters. God brings them life through his word. Isn't that good? Good for us and good for them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are so patient in getting your message across to your people. Time after time, you speak to Peter. Time after time, you speak to us. Give us this conviction that the gospel is for all and the gospel is powerful to give life to all and help us in an idolatrous culture to live repentant lives that actually become lives of love because we follow your commands. And in love we pray, sustain us in sharing the gospel with all. To Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.